Hello, everybody. I'm Zach Joyner, and welcome to a Spidey Dude Experience Special Edition. This time, we got Sean O'Connell. We're going to be talking a lot about Spider-Man on film, so if you're if you're into Spidey on film, this is the episode for you. Before we get started, though, and get too far into the episode, we always got to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network. Vakeman Scott, Greg Jurgen, Phoenician Georgia, and Kale, thank you all for your support of the Spidey Dude experience and all the shows on the Spidey Dude radio network, such as Voices from the Area Gargoyles podcast, Make Mine Mayday, Clone Saga Chronicles, Spectacular Radio, and more coming soon. So thanks for listening. Thanks for checking us out. And we will uh, have more stuff on our Patreon page coming to you very soon. Got some exclusives. Uh, If you want to listen to the Jonathan Frakes interview on Voices from the Area. You can listen to it right now if you become a Patreon subscriber. It'll be out this coming Friday. Really looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to more interviews on Voices from the Area and all of our shows. So speaking of, as I fade out the audio, introduce our guest. He is the managing editor over at Cinema Blend. Uh, Screwed that up. (laughs) Uh, But he's also the writer of With Great Power. Uh, The book is out for pre-order right now, correct? Correct. And then it streets on November 1st, but you can pre-order it wherever you get uh, books sold. Uh, So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all all fine book retailers. Uh, It comes out November 1st. I'm looking real forward to this. so, Sean, uh, one of the things I always ask everybody I interview, whether it be creative types or whomever, tell us your superhero origin story. How did you how did you are you a big comics fan? Are you a big movie fan? Are you both? Both. So um, I, I grew up on comics. I collected uh, religiously uh, as a as a as a kid, probably starting around age five. Uh, I was age six. Were you? Nice. Yeah, yes. it's around that time when you, you start to pick up. So, you know, I kind of love that Rob Liefeld does that thing, the spinner rack, because that's exactly what I did. You know, I stood in a in a drugstore uh, in New York City and just spun through the rack and picked up covers that looked interesting to me. And, and Spider-Man always looked interesting, you know, and then I really connected with his sense of humor and, you know, started picking up as many of his books as I could. By that point, you know, Amazing Spider-Man was pretty deep into its run. So I, you know, would save up as much as I could and buy back issues uh, mm-hmm. and then, you know, extend it out into a bunch of the X-Men comics. I, co- I collected religiously all the mutant titles, uh, every Spider-Man book. And then I dabbled in like Fantastic Four and Avengers. But I just kept coming back to the more grounded sort of street level heroes. I, I collected a lot of Daredevil, too. Um, and, I- and then movies. I was just always a huge movie fan, you know, so mm-hmm. um so, so now that the two passions have collided, you know, during this really the past 20 years, I kind of refer to it as like the golden age of, of comic book movies. Um, the new it's golden age is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so crazy to me as a listener or as a viewer, as somebody that grew up with these, like when we were kids, right. We never would have dreamed of having the movies that we have now. And we just did a commentary that came out on, on uh, May 3rd, which was the anniversary of the first Raimi film. And I remember talking about how it was a cultural zeitgeist, yeah, you know, and how a lot of kids that have known nothing but these superhero films don't understand necessarily what it took to get here. So tell me about the research that you had to do to do the book. Was it how, how much of it was interviews? How much of it was walk me through the process. Sure. It ended up being way more extensive than I anticipated. I knew I wanted to cover as much as I could, um, essentially from the from the earliest get go, which which meant Nicholas Hammond, but it also meant you know everything prior to as people tried to mount different adaptations of Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right around the time that the the Nicholas Hammond uh, show was coming together, that was also right around the time that the Japanese Tohi, you know, Spider-Man was coming together as well, too. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to do in in tracing his uh, evolution on screen was really just pick apart all the lessons that people got each time they tackled the idea of how do you make Spider-Man look realistic uh, in a movie? Mm-hmm. And so I've been lucky enough as the managing editor of Cinema Blend to cover uh, basically the entire run of MCU Spider-Man 
but I was also writing for the site and covering film during the Mark Webb Spider-Mans. So I saw the Raimi ones as a fan and was just a junkie, you know, for, for everything that Raimi was doing. And then mm -hmm. I, I wrote about Mark's stuff while he was going through that whole run. So I had my own original reporting from, from those times, from the, from the Mark Webb films and through all of the Marvel stuff. But even at that, I wanted to do deeper dives and really talk to um, all the directors. But then even I got time with John Dykstra, uh, who walked me through uh, everything they did from a, a production standpoint and a visual effects standpoint to to, you know, how they compared uh, what it would look like for an actual stuntman to try to do the things that Spider-Man can do versus wow. a, a CGI sort of VFX driven version and how they had to convince the studio that one looked more convincing than the other. And then, of course, even just the difference from like Spider-Man to Spider-Man 2, the progress that they'd made with Raimi keeping his team together. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being, you know, 18 months worth of uh, of conversations with just anybody that I could get on a Zoom or via email. And the more you got people, the more you, you the more I collected interviews, they were like, oh, you should talk to so and so. And I was like, well, of course I've been, you know, like, oh, you should talk to David Kep. You know, he had a, a sequel treatment that he was going to give to Sam. Well, of course, I would love to talk to, to David Kep. Right. And then it almost got to the point where, like, everybody wanted to be part of it. You know, like more people were like, oh, I've got a great story to tell from the time we worked on this. And so it became a big celebration of of all the work that went into uh, bringing these Spider-Man films to life. I mean, you know, I remember reading like Marvel's The Untold Story and they were kind of they kind of touch, they don't deep dive into that stuff a lot. Uh, obviously, they're focusing mostly on the comics, but, you know, they talked about how, you know, even as far back as the 60s, they were trying to shop it to Hollywood. And sure. Eventually, the 67 series comes out and, and by our standards is nothing but meme fodder. But by the standards <laughs> of the day, <laughs> you know, it's it was it was so revolutionary um and so i i know that they're i mean they were trying to make spider i i think stan's dream was to get spider-man on the screen and from what i read and, and i know uh canon films at one point had the rights uh there was even a trailer a teaser trailer that was produced <laughs> um so i know that it was a very complex web do you get into the legal aspect of of how spidey came to film all of it yeah, I did. I did a deep dive to really put all of that together and, you know, wasn't able to talk to Golan or Globus, um, but I did get a chance to speak with uh, and interview uh, Joe Zito, who was the director who was hired by Canon at the time right. to put that movie together. And Joe had directed a couple of uh, Chuck Norris films mm -hmm. uh, like Missing in Action. And he had made a couple of he'd made some money for for Canon, essentially. Right. And when he heard that Canon was trying to make a Spider-Man movie, he essentially put their feet to the fire and was like, Hey, I've been making you some money. Give me a shot at Spider-Man. And I don't know if you remember, but like at that time, uh, Toby Hooper who had done Poltergeist was, mm -hmm. was working up a treatment for Spider-Man, but he envisioned it. The way that he described it was like, uh, it was a, a, a horror film where the, the teenager turned into a spider. Like he, he saw it as a different version, like a different vision right. for it. He thought it was like the, a wolf man, you know, where like a teenager turned into a wolf. Yeah, right. So Joe Zito put all this stuff together to try to get, you know, something mounted. But according to him, Canon was never going to invest. The way that Canon made their money is they would announce titles and then they would pre-sell all the international rights to those movies and then never make the movies or make them and make them dirt cheap. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they never really committed to a Spider-Man movie, but they threw enough money at Marvel to essentially say like, we're serious about it, but they really weren't. And then from that point on Spider-Man's rights get very, very complicated uh, with certain divisions, like a home video entertainment uh, element goes to Sony uh, and at one point, MGM had their fingers in the pot. So mm -hmm. I untangle as much of that as I can. And I think I get it all right. But it really is, you know, a, a spider's web, but no pun intended, uh, of people uh, all claiming a piece of Spider-Man. Yeah, I remember the when they finally announced the Sony deal, uh, you know, uh, un, uh, un, uh, it was like out of the spider's web or untangled web, you know, uh, <laughs> and I remember the, the press release on the back on the back covers. Uh, or in the in 99 so when you were collecting comics to go back for a second what are you talking early 90s mid 90s uh no 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 this was in the 80s um this would be mid 80s i was born in 74 and so i okay. started picking up around 84 85 and then oh. um you know collecting all the way through let's see 
I collected through high school and I graduated from high school in 96. Okay. So from around 85 to 96, I collected pretty religiously. Clone saga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, McFarlane and Venom and, and all of that. Uh, I was reading those as first run books. And, um, you know, this will the first Secret Wars and, and, and right. you know, the, so this will break your heart. Uh, I had a I had a pretty decent collection. I, I think I collected all of uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, the, the complete set. I know I had everything from Web of Spider-Man from one all the way through. And I'd done a pretty good job of back collecting Amazing Spider-Man issues. And um, I went away to college. And while I was gone, <laughs> my father uh, found out that I was thinking of selling my my collection because I needed money, essentially. And how long was I going to hold on to it? So he, I came home one, one time as a break from college and he said, uh, Hey, I, I, I did you a favor. I sold some of your books. And I said, what are you talking about? And he had invited over some, someone who obviously knew what they were doing and went through the collection and plucked out all the valuable, uh, issues and, and essentially gutted my collection, <laughs> just gutted my collection and my dad, God bless him. You know, he doesn't know. He had no clue. He thought he was uh -huh. doing me a favor. So yeah. then I bring my my boxes of comics, you know, to my to the guy who I'd been purchasing for years. And so he's looking through them and and I, I'm seeing the look on his face where he essentially looks at me and he goes, you know, everything's gone from here. <laughs> I was like, yes, I know. I know. I know. So that will always That's... be my my scar. <laughs> oh, my. And the funny and the funny thing is, is your dad It's like this will break your heart. So my dad grew up in this in, in the early 60s. As a kid, he used to literally walk down to the to the uh, Coca-Cola plant and go to the drugstore and they would gather up Coke bottles, take them back to the to the plant, get 30 cents, a six pack. And they would go down to the drugstore, get two comics and a, and a, and a Coke soda pop for 30 cents. He had the first Fantastic Four. Amazing Fantasy 15, first X-Men, oh. uh, 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 first Black Panther. I mean, you start listing off the characters. He had those original and between him and his brothers. Uh, they just they were disposable things, of course. Uh, I, I'll never forget the the, sh the sheer look on my uncle's face when, I, when he's like, oh, you know, I hear those, those comics. Are, the comics are becoming pretty valuable. What, you know? What are those comics where I was like, oh, yeah, those ones that you used to have? And he goes, yeah. I said, you don't want me to tell you. And he goes, why? <laughs> I said, well, I think it was like Amazing Fantasy. I, I pulled out the Amazing Fantasy 15. I think at that point it was like $2 million. And he went and he just face which stark white. His, his My aunt looked at him and goes, what? Yeah, I was well, like, I mean, it, no one was collecting, you know, nobody that didn't. No. And, I, and him and I were talking about that because, he, you know, he also had like a uh, I love guitars and he had a, a Les Paul Jr. Okay. And, you know, that thing's now worth, you know, he bought it for like thousand bucks and now it's worth like 20 grand. Okay. And he goes, yeah. I wish I kept it, you know, uh, for the sentimental value. But he's like, I, yeah, he's like, I haven't even looked at replacing. And I was like, you don't want to. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's gonna be pretty expensive. Yeah, you just yeah. you just you don't know what's gonna end up being collectible. So, so did you get to interview Sam Raimi or or or, or Mark? So Sam, Sam, I I got through. Uh, well, he had done some press for Doctor Strange recently, and mm -hmm. we got to speak a little bit about. Um, and then he and he and I had, had talked a couple times over the years, and I'd always asked him Spider Man questions, so I archived some of those questions that I was going to ask. Mark was one was literally the only person who who did not want to contribute to the um, to the book, and so I got uh, I spoke to Avi Arad, and I interviewed uh, Matt Talmac, and I interviewed Amy Pascal um, and Andrew, and and essentially got the story of those movies. But when you put it all together, you realize that Mark um, really you know had his heart broken by that franchise uh, by you know, being brought on to make essentially 500 days of summer, you know, with a Spider-Man, with Spider-Man as the lead right? Uh, and, and put its heart into, you know, an indie kind of approach to a, to a franchise. 
And then with Amazing Spider-Man 2, you know, it had to serve so many masters and it became not the movie that he wanted to make. And, uh, you know, I think he really just wanted to distance himself from it. Mark and I talked a lot while he was making those movies. And mm -hmm. I would write pieces for Cinema Blend about, you know, the idea of building this larger cinematic universe with Oscorp at its center. And he would write me messages and say, like, you're on to what we're trying to do. And but I just don't, you know, I don't think he believed in it. And I think at this point right now, he just wants to sort of put it all behind him. So, uh, you know, it, it's so disappointing to hear that because there's so many fans that, you know, are, are clamoring for that amazing Spider-Man 3. You wrote a you wrote a Snyder cut book prior mm -hmm. to this. Is was it you working on that that kind of led you into doing the Spider Man, or or you or, or was it something you were just working on concurrently, or describe that process? Sure, the Spider uh, the Snyder Cut book. I, I've been writing for twenty years for websites and newspapers, and I never thought I would get the chance to write a book. I just never thought I would find a story that was compelling enough uh, to take the time to write a book essentially. And I would get asked a lot of times by like friends and family members, like, Oh, are you ever going to write a book? And I said, I don't have the, I'm a parent like you, you know, you, we barely have free time. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but that, that, that's uh Zack Snyder story was fascinating to me. You know, everything that happened with him, with that movie getting taken away from him and, and then being butchered. And then the work that that community did to get his cut out there and, you know, I thought they had a real charitable aspect to the work, to the funds that they raised for um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I thought they had a lot of really good things going on and I wanted to tell their story. Mm -hmm. So um, I interviewed a ton of them and, and then I interviewed a lot of people involved with the with the movie as well, too. And through just pure serendipity, uh, as I'm wrapping that that book up, uh, HBO Max announces that they're going to release it, that they're going to show the cut. Uh, I had no clue that the cut was going to get released. I planned on writing an open-ended uh, ending to the book that basically just said, like, if this ever happens, you know, these are probably the people who helped make it happen. And, uh, wow. and instead it <laughs> came out and then I got Snyder uh, to, to come on. And, and so that, that book, uh, you know, came out and, and, and then basically the publishers who I worked with said like, well, what else would you want to write about? And I was like, well, I'd always want to write about Spider-Man. Like, he's my guy kind of thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I didn't have an idea necessarily, but I thought, mm -hmm. like, if I was going to write about Spider-Man, what would I want to cover? And, you know, I was kind of fascinated by the transition that, that had happened between Sony and Marvel because the mm -hmm. idea of two major Hollywood studios sharing a piece of IP is still unheard of, you know? Right. Kind of... Uh, I'm kind of amazed that that they pulled that off and continue to pull it off. And, you know, I've always been impressed by everything that Feige's doing. So I kind of wanted to explore that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I didn't even know when I started this whole process that we were building towards No Way Home. You know, so right. to have a movie coming out that that gets all three of the Spider-Men together, <laughs> you know, and then to have a book that tells you, hey, here's their journey, you know, and mm -hmm. here's the culmination. And yet it's 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 not that journey is not ending because you see how many movies that Sony has planned, you know, for their universe for mm -hmm. good and for bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they'll keep trying to figure out what they're doing with a Spider-Man, you know, but I want to go back to one, to one point you brought up about Mark Webb, which is, I think if Mark would embrace uh, the franchise and come back around, he would see that, that sense of love that Andrew got from no way home where mm -hmm. people would say like, they were doing good work. They just got bogged down with a bad script or, you know, the, it was the the right people in the wrong place or something like that. Like I, Mark doesn't deserve the, the, the headache that came with amazing Spider-Man 2. No, uh, look it, 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 from a fan standpoint, just purely from a fan standpoint, I didn't hate it, but I felt like it tried, it was trying too hard. And I think, yeah. I think that Mark was trying, this is just my, I, I don't know. I don't have obviously, <laughs> sources the way you do but it f just felt like he was trying so hard to make what sony wanted and i i think that <laughs> and i think this is kind of vindicative of, of hollywood in general they're looking at what marvel's doing and thinking that they can try to replicate it you know yep. universal with with the monster monster movies and and you know dc obviously dc 
Yeah. But and it's funny how DC on the small screen was able to pull that off mm-hmm. in a way that I kind of feel like outside of net the Netflix series and the now Disney Plus series, Marvel couldn't pull that off until that point. It's like they had to learn those lessons of the of the Netflix shows to to get those Disney Plus series right. So uh, it's crazy to me to see, you know, but I, I tell everybody, everything comes back to Spider-Man without the Raimi film and the first and the, and the, and the uh, Brian Singer uh, X-Men and to mm-hmm. a lesser extent Blade, mm-hmm. although Blade doesn't get the love it needs. It should. Yep. Those um, three of the three, those the three, three. It's like proof of concept. OK, we, we think we can make this team thing work and then boom you know, uh, kind of the perfect storm. Um, so how long is the book? Uh, this sounds like it's a pretty meaty. Uh, how many pages is it? It's I think it's 288. OK, so just shy of 300. And okay. um, it, it covers a lot of ground, you know, like it, it does cover the early days with the um, with the ham and stuff. It gets mm-hmm. into the the legal mumbo jumbo and the different people who tried to start including cameron uh my i mean this is one of my white whales i got a chance to interview james cameron and talk to him about uh his his uh you know thoughts and and preparation for for spider-man at that point Mm -hmm. and he legitimately refers to that as the the project that got away you know that he still wishes he had a chance to 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 tackle listen i i would watch a james cameron directed mcu film of course, tomorrow if he could ever pull himself out of Pandora for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I we were watching Doctor Strange. I didn't even know that uh, the, the trailer had came out for uh, Avatar 2. And I was like, oh, we're going back. All right, cool. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, it was like one of those things. It was like a it was like a mythical unicorn that I just, you know, kind of kept writing off going, oh, you know, if it ever comes, it comes, you know. But, but I find each of those stops along the way uh, canon. Or, um, you know, th- there was a uh, Stan Lee-backed script uh, that uh, Ted Newsom and John Brancato tried to put together uh, that had a lot of insight from Stan. So it was one of the closest stories to, to the true origin. You know, it would have gotten a lot of the stuff right. Or Cameron, that if any of them had succeeded, we'd be on a different, an alternate timeline. You know, we'd be in a multiverse <laughs> where who knows where we would be. And I'm fascinated by that. Like, if... Right. If I mean, Raimi didn't launch it, you know, if something had happened earlier, what what might have been like all that stuff is really interesting to me. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, we wouldn't I I tell everybody like because of and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Kevin Feige was a production assistant on the first Raimi film, correct? Yes, he was. He was, well, so, he was uh, working for Avi Arad mm-hmm. and Avi had plucked him from X-Men where he was an assistant for Lauren Shula Donner. And they sort of contributed over to some of Raimi stuff too. Talk to me about Avi Arad and how, <laughs> I mean, this is a guy at one point that owned half of Marvel with him and Ike Promuter, you right. know, with toy biz and everything like that. Uh, do you, do you touch upon the bankruptcy? Does it, does it, does it contribute to some of this issues with the film rights? Absolutely. Um, because you can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. And, and I try not to get too bogged down in it. And there's, in fact, where do I have it here? There's a really great book called Comic Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not here. It's downstairs. That really dives into the nuts and bolts of the of the bankruptcy settlement. And so I, I kind of left it to that. But you mm-hmm. can't not talk about the success of Toy Biz. Uh, and, and Avi, I, I say this in the book, and I truly mean this with all my heart. Like, there is no Kevin Feige without Avi. Like Avi came first and Avi was the one who went to Hollywood with the concept of we have to make these movies in his, you know, he did want them to be commercials for the toys. He really knew. <laughs> like he said, if we can make these movies big, people are going to come and buy the toys, you know, <laughs> as I, <laughs> for our audio, our audio <laughs> listeners, as I literally point to above my head, the, the exactly. retro card figures, so he might not have had the purest intention, but he deserves the credit for going, you know, and knocking on all the Hollywood studio doors and convincing, you know, Tom Rothman at Fox to take a gamble on X-Men. And, um, oh God, who was it? New Line now at this point. New Line gave him the shot at Blade 
Uh, and he brought, when he went into the meeting to pitch Blade, he brought a, a young David Goyer with him. And Goyer had the idea, you know, for how to do Blade properly, essentially. Um, but Avi knew his stuff. He really did. You know, there's a reason why he stuck around and, and worked so heavily in the Spider-Man franchise and, and helped build Marvel Studios. He did have the idea that they should be doing it uh, out in Hollywood. And then it was Kevin who sort of took it the next step and said, uh, we should be doing it ourselves instead of partnering with the other studios, which right. is why like Iron Man was at Paramount and, and Hulk was at Universal before they finally figured out how to bring everything in house. So going back to the Snyder Cut uh, book, do you mm -hmm. think there will ever be another fan driven type of campaign for an, a, a film? Because I, I think it. I think it just was that perfect storm. You know what I mean? Because I know that the, to relate to Spider-Man, there's a lot of people that are like, you know, make it make amazing Spider-Man three or mm. make Spider-Man four. And I dealt with this a little bit with the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon, uh, talking with Greg Wiseman a lot. And, and you know, the question of why there was never a season three. And it's, mm -hmm. it's like, well, it's because Disney bought Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why would yeah. they pay Sony to make a, cartoon that they can now make in their own studios that they oh i mean or why would so you know why would disney buy all that from sony right it just doesn't it, it, it was just they got you know they the show got caught in the middle between it's in a tug of war and i'm sure you get into that in the book too you know and that happens uh, you know this just happens that studios are there to make money not to satisfy fans but for the most part so you see, you kind of agree a little bit that 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 Snyder cut thing was just kind of a lightning in a bottle type thing. It really was, and there are there are smaller examples. David Ayer apparently has a, a different cut of the Suicide Squad that he made, um, and and that the studio sort of took that from him and butchered it. And he would like to get his version released, a proper version, which has you know different different uh, footage of Jared Leto as Joker. And, and what makes something like that possible is is just streaming. You know, HBO Max, it's it's much easier for a studio to just put it on a streaming service and use it right. as bait to lure more subscribers. Um, believe it or not, there's a very strong audience uh, that loved Alita Battle Angel. And they're fighting on social media to get another uh, installment of Alita Battle Angel made. Hmm. And what, what, what helps those movements and what set the Snyder Cut one apart was that the people responsible for it and in, the, in that case it was Zack Snyder um, or with Alita it's you know Robert Rodriguez or even Cameron is they have to support it you know they have to Zack would never let it go you know anytime that it felt like that movement was dying down Zack would put a little bit more bait out there because he knew he had a cut and he knew it was much better than what had made at the theaters mm -hmm. and he just knew if he could keep stoking those flames that he would get people going but, right. you know, quite often when you hear like, so Lord and Miller, Phil Lord and Chris Miller got fired from Solo, right? And people kind of want to know, like, what was their version supposed to be before Ron Howard took it over? But if you ask them, they're just like, oh, no, no, we never, we didn't film much and it's there's nothing there. They kind of shut it down. But hmm. anytime anyone asks Zach, like, hey, do you have a cut? He's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. And if they let me show it, I'll show it. So I think you need that too. You know, I think you need that sort of kick. If Sam Raimi were out there doing press and saying, I'd, I'd make four. Let's make four, you know, then I think right. that brings a little bit more heat to people. Or if Mark Webb said, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like another crack at it. But, you know, they kind of, although Sam is Sam is starting to come around. <laughs> he is saying some stuff. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I Whenever they, they brought him aboard to Doctor Strange 2, I was like, well, there's nobody better. Because, I mean, nobody understood. I, I, I think for visually speaking, and I, I felt like they did a good job in the first Doctor Strange film, but like, Sam Raimi, I think, gets the mind of Steve Ditko better than most. Sure, exactly. <laughs> and and I thought, okay, well, if anybody's going to handle this character in a way that would honor Steve Ditko, this is the way. <laughs> you know? fact, the people who um, who I've heard who kind of complain about how Gonzo it gets in the third act, and I won't say anything in case anyone hasn't is listening right. and hasn't seen it. I'm like, you do realize that's why they hired Sam Raimi. And I also, you do realize that's what's in the Doctor Strange comics. Like, <laughs> it's supposed it, to get weird. It gets weird. It gets dark. Like, yeah. I, like if you've never read the, uh, I've, I've, I've lovingly called it at times, it was an acid trip. Like, like the psychedelic <laughs> nature. And I don't think, you know, to my knowledge, Ditko never did drugs. But, you know, that that kaleidoscope 
type um, way of looking at things the mm-hmm. way you did with Doctor Strange in those early books. I mean, if you go on Marvel Unlimited, which I always recommend because I'm a big Spider-Girl fan. That's all on, on Marvel Unlimited. It was one of the first to be on Marvel Unlimited. Um, like, go back and read those early Doctor Strange books and you're, you're going to see. And, and even like through the 70s, there's a lot of horror elements to Doctor Strange. Yep. You know, um, so I, I had somebody tell me today, like, man, that's a scary movie. And I'm like, it was it was like it wasn't a Marvel movie. It was a scary movie. I was like, it's a marvelous, scary movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. Dad joke. You appreciate wonder, that. Kind of makes me wonder what Scott Derrickson wanted to do mm-hmm. that Feige was like, you know, no, we have to part ways. Kind of. I wonder how intense he really wanted to make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and, he did a great job of the origin story. I really liked. I really like Stranger's origin. I I just like the way. I thought they nailed the casting. They nailed the costuming. They nailed uh, the, the streak that Marvel has been on. Mm-hmm. Is so incredible, and I you you probably understand film history better than most, given your background. Has there ever been anything like it? With no, studios? and there never will. There's never going to be anything even close. Um, the closest that they might have been able to get. Well, I mean, I can't say I can't say never because there might be a property that comes around. But even something as impressive as the Harry Potter franchise, which did nine films, I think, mm-hmm. um, and kept what what's, what I call impressive about that was that they kept that core cast together. You know, they they cast those kids as as adolescents. <laughs> And, and they <laughs> yeah. all ended up being good. You know, they were really good at what they did and they kept them all together. And I've, I said this, I say this a lot. Like if one of those kids went off the rails, the franchise goes south, you know, like mm-hmm. Emma Watson ended up becoming a distinguished young woman. But if she went the Lindsay Lohan wrote route, you know, <laughs> and who, how would they know? They have no right. idea. They just gambled. And right. it worked, you know, like right. so much of, of these big studio efforts are gambles and you have to be lucky. Um, and yeah. I think Marvel early on was lucky with a lot of stuff. And now they have it kind of figured out. The, and yeah. I think they could even absorb a couple of misses, you know, mm-hmm. as they try to ex- experiment. And, you know, for some people who don't like Eternals, there's other people who love it or Shang-Chi, you know, I, I think had a, a large audience, but there's some people who think the third act went a little bit off the rails, but it's Marvel trying stuff. They're expanding their 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 palette. Now they can play with so many new things. There's a Moon Knight series <laughs> with Oscar Isaac just crushing it. I, crushing it. The the two things I've not seen yet is I have not watched Moon Knight and I have not watched Eternals yet. And it's just because okay. I just it was one of those things. I hadn't got to watch either one of those. But the fact yeah. that an Eternals movie got made, yeah, like that's very deep cut Kirby, like <laughs> like it's wild. It's Jack Kirby never would have dreamed that there would be an Eternals movie. Here's I don't the think part that boggles my mind too is that a a doctor strange sequel but let alone we have a doctor strange sequel mm-hmm. and, but but it opened to 187 million dollars like what what are you kidding me so our, our the website spidey-dude.com the original iteration of it um we we in 2001 we it was just me and my dad um doing the site and it's just a fan site but I'll never forget because we had a couple of screen caps from the trailer. Okay. That opening weekend of a hundred million for yeah. Raimi. Yeah. Crashed my website. <laughs> every, every Spidey fan site that weekend went down for several hours. Of course. And now and I, I'm, I tell people I, like younger people I'm like, because my wife, she's in a, she she works in education, and so you know I'll see these teenagers, and they're they're talking about the, the latest Marvel stuff, and I, I just kind of shake my head, and they're like, I'm like, I remember when movies never made a hundred million dollars in a weekend. Now <laughs> right, it's right. a failure when they make a hundred million dollars a weekend. I know. Outside I know. the pandemic, um, it's insanity that 187. I mean, and I kind of predicted. Uh, or, or when we did our, our review of, of No Way Home, I, I said, 
in the in a similar way that that the Raimi film was a zeitgeist because of it's the post 9-11 movie mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um kind of felt the same way with No Way Home because of yeah. the fact that we were coming out of the pandemic and and you know I'm in Texas, so it's a different experience than those in New York and and California and Florida. So you know, but everybody was kind of, I think, or is kind of ready to go back to normal or get yep. started, get back to normal. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that it coming out, you know, over the holiday season, I think people were like, I'm ready to go with my family to go see that film. And I think it obviously <laughs> not just hit a double or a triple, it hit a, a grand slam. You're so right. Um, and, and it was, it was the perfect timing. And really, you know, when we talk about luck, you know, the, 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 the decks shuffled at Marvel, you know, like Dr. Strange was supposed to come out before it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had to rearrange some plot in order to make that work, but they knew that Spider-Man should have been in that window in that December window. Mm-hmm. And it just, like you said, it destroyed. <laughs> Do you, okay. Um, answer me this, how you've, you've been doing journalism and, and writing on film. So you have a, a different perspective than most. How has things journalistic wise changed in the mm-hmm. time that you started in your career and to, to now? Um, there's so much more uh, not knowledge in the fan base for better or for worse mm-hmm. uh, there. It's really, really hard to uh keep things away from fans who nowadays you know where 20 years ago it was you you know can you you can remember back i'm sure you 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 know where we seem to be around the same age where you saw a trailer for a movie you didn't even know was coming you know and now now when you see a trailer you you've read about all the scenes that are showing up in it, you know? And so (laughs) there's YouTube videos of them analyzing every frame of the trailer or playing it. Exactly. 0.5. So that, that appetite is important, I think, you know, and it, it's, listen, it's fueling what we're doing right now, you know, it's it's the passion. Mm -hmm. Um, But it used to be, we were reporting on stuff that nobody really even knew. And now we're sort of commenting on all the, like, you know, we know, right. Uh, here's a great example. We know the next three uh, Spider-Man movies that are coming. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that there's Venom three, there's a Craven movie. There's Madam web. There's mm-hmm. going to be a, an animated Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse parts one and parts two. Right. When we, when I first started reporting, you didn't know if a movie was going to get a sequel, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and now things come to the, come to the, you know, the, the marketplace with a built-in franchise that's due to last the next 10 years. And so, you know, we change the way that we report on stuff because Mm -hmm. when people get cast, they could potentially be looking at the next 10 years of their lives. And uh, so I find all that to be really fascinating. We're covering the industry from a different standpoint. Also Mm -hmm. now, you know, I love the Marvel movies. I'm, I'm, they're my thing. But I do recognize the fact that, you know, they are changing the landscape of what gets played in a movie theater and that the, you know, mid mid budget movies that used to share space in the multiplexes don't get that opportunity anymore and are probably going to streaming. You know, there was the someone took a picture and it shared on social media of the the Doctor Strange screening times, you know, for opening weekend. And it was like 70 options, (laughs) 70 options to see Doctor Strange. But God forbid you want to go see the Northman, you know, it's gone kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So so that's changed completely. And I kind of do think this is where we're heading. I think we're heading to a, a, a reality where the multiplex is going to be where you go to see big ticket blockbuster films. Um, and the rest of the stuff that we used to share in the multiplex, uh, for the most part, is going to end up on streaming. Is it a good thing or... Do you think it's it has its pros and cons? I mean, it, it's keeping the theater industry alive. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy for it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Do I think that there is a glut of it? Yeah, probably, you know. Um so so there's pros and cons. Mm-hmm. And 
it's discouraging because I see I interviewed filmmakers and and actors who feel like they I interviewed Ethan Hawke. Right. And mm-hmm. this was before Moon Knight came out and he was promoting uh, a, a low budget indie that he made with a director named Abel Ferrara uh, that he was very proud of, but he knew nobody was going to go see. And by the end of the interview, I kind of brought up Moon Knight and I was like, hey, man, we're really excited to see what you do, you know, as that character. Uh, and he goes, well, that's that's where he goes. I'm a player. I'm a ball player. And that's where the, the game is being played right now. <laughs> you know, you have to go over there and and play. And he goes, and I, I loved what I saw and I was really impressed by their approach. But like, if you want to work nowadays, you got to figure out what superhero franchise you're going to be part of. And, you know, there's a reveal in the mid credits of Doctor Strange of yet another big A-lister who now has uh, a superhero role. And I, so, yeah, I, I literally tell you my story of that scene without going into specifics but sure when they showed up i'm like two two things two and i think this is universal two thoughts went in my head was that who i thought it was and what is that character's name i can't remember the character's name i know who that is yeah my my and my wife who is marvel novice no knows very little other than you know she she loves watching the films with me because I can, I pick out the Easter eggs and kind of, you know, bring that to her and her attention. And she really appreciates that because she appreciates her dad was a cinephile. Mm-hmm. He loved cinema. So that's, you know, he passed away several years ago, but before we ever got together. And so that's kind of her way of honoring her dad. And, you know, she's like, who is that? And I'm like, I, I need to, and, and, but I think I got on cinema blend and sure enough, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, that I looked at the article. I'm like, okay, that's who that was. That's I'm trying right. not. To, we're trying not to spoil things for Doctor Strange because I mean, though it oh, made he, 186 million, not everybody's seen it yet. Here's one other thing that has changed and, and has changed pretty drastically. Blockbusters used to be reserved for the summer when I first started covering film, right? And you know, we had different periods of the year where you saw, you know, you expected to see certain things. And it was like January and February was always a bit of a dead zone. Uh, March would start to warm up, but then you'd get into the summer blockbuster season. And then by the end of the year, you were back into your dramas and awards contenders, essentially. And that's still kind of the blueprint, but and I forget which movie kicked it off. It was before Black Panther, even though I think Black Panther had a February release. But mm-hmm. somewhere along the way, studios realized, oh, we can open these whenever. You know, and now it's January to December. You're booked with blockbusters. And that that was another step towards blockbuster tentpole dominance, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think the bubble that we're we're experiencing is going to burst and burst hard? Um, Yeah, it has to, Um, you know, because even if you use the Western as the most the 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 most easy parallel right that's what i think of too yeah you know people people don't remember and and not that we were here for it but like the 50s and 60s were dominated by westerns you know and people probably felt the exact same way like if i'm gonna work i gotta work in a western whether it was you know the american west or they were going to italy for this for the spaghetti westerns Um, right and i thought tarantino does a really good job of commenting that on once upon a time in hollywood so can they sustain it? No. You know, like we're, we're getting to a point too where, and God bless Marvel and God bless DC, but they're getting to the, you know, Blue Beetle is getting a movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, maybe it'll be great, but like eventually you're going to run out of, you know, the characters that are household names. And if they don't all connect, uh, you know, right now with what Marvel has coming, Marvel's in a better spot because they can go around to Fantastic Four and they can go around to X-Men and they can kind of rejuvenate themselves. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, DC just keeps trotting out Batman. And God bless them. I loved Matt Reeves' movie. I thought it was fantastic. Right. Um, but they got to figure out some of their other big ticket heroes because eventually you're just going to start rolling out heroes that that weren't popular in the comics because they didn't catch on with audiences and they're not going to catch on in a different medium. So Right, right. I mean, it's it's funny how how badly I'm not a huge fan of, of Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, but I love Henry Cavill. I thought he was well cast. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't think he's gotten the script that you would hope for. But it's like they nail. Uh, I, I enjoyed the first season of Superman and Lois. I haven't watched season two yet, but you know they, they keep nailing it on the small screen, but they can't get it right on the big screen. And that that's always right. been my my frustration with with DC is like, you know, other than Shazam, which I and, and Aquaman and and Wonder Woman, you know, I really enjoyed those movies, but. I didn't see Aquaman until years after the fact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Wonder Woman was one I did see in, in, in theater and then on streaming whenever, you know, 84 came out. Uh, so it's like, but I, I, now, I, I, I've got so much Marvel stuff that I'm wanting to see and mm-hmm. that they've got so much stuff like, you know, with, <laughs> with the way things or prices are right now, I have to like kind of be nitpicky over, you know, what movies do I see? I'm going to go see the Marvel movies for sure. You know, and, and, and the you same- know, at the same time on both sides, mm-hmm. no one, no one knew the guardians of the galaxy before James Gunn, you know, introduced them as a team. If the movie works, it works. Right. Um, you know, if you, when, when he announced he was going to make a peacemaker show, uh, I was like, that's the silliest idea I've ever heard. And then I loved it. So again, if, if the story works, <laughs> it works. Yes. So, and uh, yeah. for Spidey in particular, there's still plenty of things that can be explored with Spider-Man. Like you could do miles and give yourself 10 years of storytelling if you want to. So uh, they haven't scratched the surface yet. Oh my. And, and the thing is, is that, is that uh, people are like, what did you think of the Venom movie? And I'm like, I, I liked it, but my, there's my one, there's one caveat to the Venom movie for me. There's no Spider-Man. There's no. Sp- <laughs> There's gonna be the caveat listen, to Craven. It's gonna be the caveat to Madam Web. It's, Madam it's, Web? It, yeah, <laughs> and, and I'm like, they're like Madam Web. I'm like, listen, you know, every it's gonna have a hard time topping Joan Lee uh, as Madam Web. Okay, in, in my in my brain, we have uh, to talk about. We have to talk about. Sony has seven hundred characters mm-hmm. that they can choose from. Right. Uh, that are under the umbrella of Spider-Man, you know, adjacent, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. But they're choosing El Muerto. <laughs> and <laughs> okay, I tweeted okay. literally at Peter David, who we've I've interviewed on the <laughs> network. I'm like, you better get a fat check for this. OK, Because <laughs> like what? <laughs> like Venom, I get Venom, of course. Right. Craven makes sense. Like I'd love to see Craven on on screen. Morbius uh-huh. was strange. Madame yeah, Web's kind of strange. Like ahead of a Scorpion movie, you know, ahead of even a damn Shocker movie, you know. <laughs> Both Some of which you've set up in the MCU. Like, thank you. Thank you. you could do so, it for for Mayday fans. You could do a Spider Girl movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean. You could do a, a you could do a Spider Gwen movie. You can do Miles, like you say. I mean, now with the Spider Verse and these and a lot of kids getting exposed to those characters, you know, like you have a wealth of options. Um, I'd watch a Nicolas Cage starring Spider Man Noir. I, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you kidding Absolutely. me? Uh, so when gr- we talk about the bubble, I'm taking it back a little bit. <laughs> Maybe the bubble won't burst, but they have to make smart decisions in order to keep it inflated. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where the right people, the right creative, the right casting. And it seems like that Sony and and, and Marvel look, I have I have issues with the MCU Spider-Man versus various things, but then No Way Home corrected a lot of those issues for me. So like those issues are like, okay, now they go away. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, in the last two movies, I walked out of there really optimistic. I, and I, I told people, I was like, I loved far from home more because of the last five minutes of the, of the being in New five York minutes of no way home is of no my way favorite. Yeah. yeah. The last five minutes of no way home is the best thing that Marvel's done. Mm-hmm. And, and, I cry. I cried. And seeing I'm like, a homemade suit. Oh, I, dude, I throughout that movie and I saw, listen, I have not seen Spider-Man in the theaters multiple times 
since the first Raimi film. And okay. I, I think the second Raimi film, I saw it four times. Okay. Yeah. In the theater. Um, it, my wife loved it universally. <laughs> Buddy Fakeman. Uh, that's a 90s Spider-Man uh, cartoon <laughs> reference. <laughs> we use that. We use that meme a lot. Um, but, you know, I saw it four times. I, my wife loved it. My dad loved it. Uh, who is not loved um, a Spider-Man film probably since since uh, he loves Spider-Man three. Um, oh, he's you know. the guy. I, I know people that love Spider-Man three. I don't hate it the way other people do, but I understand mm. the criticism. Um, and I kind of look at to that way too. ASM two is the same way. It's like I find things to like about it because I'm a Spider-Man fan, right? Sure. But I liked. I always said I love Toby's Peter Parker, but I liked uh, Andrew's Spider-Man more. Okay, just because you know the sarcastic nature, and I felt like Holland has done a really good job of blending those two mm-hmm. together. But it's also the script too. Uh, you know, it's also delivery because, like I've talked about with some of my friends who play the video games, Toby nailed quips in the video games. It just they sure. didn't write it in the films. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yep. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where I just I'm and I'm so when I, like I say, I've got it on pre-order. I, I'm so looking forward to this book because this I'm always a story behind the story, guys. I was that guy mm-hmm. that watched behind the music all the time. I noticed all the all the your musical instruments are those audio listeners uh, go to YouTube.com slash Spider Network Radio Network and watch this uh watch this episode but um i i, I always love the behind the scenes stuff like uh the clones i'm a big clone saga fan so reading all that stuff with the uh, life of riley series and everything mm-hmm. like that so i just i am so looking forward to it give the uh, elevator speech because we're almost at the hour mark and then and then we'll yeah. kind of begin wrapping things up so tell us you know what to expect in the book well, we talked about it on and off. As a as a rabid rabid Spider-Man fan, um, and someone who has loved all of his films uh, for for different reasons, some of them more than others, uh, what I appreciated so much about being able to tell this story is that by speaking to all the different people who were involved with these movies uh, throughout the course of of putting them together, I heard so many stories that in the moment when I heard them, I was like, Oh, that's so, that's so cool. Like I didn't know that or, and then what I'll tell you too is having to go back and reread because one of the things you write a book, you write it in stages and mm-hmm. you know, you get, and I really did break it up into like, you know, uh, the early days, all the Raimi stuff, then the web stuff and then MCU stuff. And, and then I, there's also a whole nother section about the Venom films and the Sony universe. And then I do a lot of stuff about Into the Spider-Verse as well, too. And I get Phil Lord and Chris Miller and I take them all the way through their Oscar night and all that stuff. So I would bounce around a lot. And then when you're putting the book together, you're proofreading it constantly. And I would go back and read another section. And then I would like forget a story that I had in there, you know, that someone had told me. And I read it again. I was like, oh, damn, that's so cool. I'm really glad that's in there. <laughs> that's really glad that's in there. Um, so I think that people, even if you are, you know, a diehard Spider-Man fan who thinks you know almost everything about these movies, uh, not because I'm telling them to you, but just because I was a sort of vessel, you know, for a lot of really cool people who worked on these movies uh, to share some, like Jim Atchison did the uh, costume design on all three Raimi films Mm -hmm. and just hearing the problems that they ran into uh, because (laughs) according to him, nobody really thought about the fact that Spider-Man's face is covered in a movie (laughs) until they started working on it. Uh, And he tells some hilarious stories about them needing, they hadn't cast Toby yet, but he needed a body type. Um, so that he could start working on the costumes because at any given point they have 20 different versions of the costume or 20 um, copies of the costume so that different stuntmen can wear them. And then once you have your main actor, they have to find stuntmen that almost match that, or they can pad the suit so that it mimics the actor. So you never really are confused about who's in the thing. Uh, And Raimi kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. So finally Atchison (laughs) fills a room filled with dudes just in speedos of all different body sizes. And he pulls Sam Raimi in and he goes, 
point to one of them. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, is, what is he going to look like? And Raimi, you know, is in his suit and he's all buttoned up and he said he never looked more embarrassed. And then he like picked some guy who was like a bodybuilder. And so Atchison's like, great, you know, we're going to build around that. And then Atchison goes, and then he goes and picks Tobey Maguire, who looks nothing <laughs> like this guy whatsoever. We were commenting on that. All the stuff that like, like you could always kind of like, if you watch it real closely, you can kind of see that when Toby's in the suit and when he's got the stuntman, because the stuntman always look beefy. That, yeah. that explains it. That explains it. Oh, man. So, you know, like I heard stories like that all the way throughout from people who it felt like had never been asked this stuff, you know, like, you know, Atchison telling me about how, because, you know, we love the 3D printing almost on the Raimi, how the webs are, are you know, lifted, you know, uh -huh. and he talks about just how, how impossible that was. Like it was cutting and gluing, you know, and, and then it couldn't be flexible. And these were all things that they were learning on the fly. And that's why when they got to. Uh, amazing Spider-Man. The costume designers were like, "We're not doing that anymore. Uh, we're going <laughs> going with a swimsuit. So get him in this because they just the, these are the things that they were learning." And I loved it. I love like you. I love the behind the scenes of people trying to put all that stuff together. Hmm. Well, let me tell you, I, I was I, I, I'm so excited. I'm so thankful that you you took the time to talk to us tonight. Because this is, you know, one of the things that I just, I, I'm always fascinated by. And, you know, the fact that you're so tied into the, to this, you, this world, you know, it's, it, it's good that it's an expert and it's not somebody, some schmo like me, who's a fan, just a fan, you know, you, you, your, you know, your professional credentials speak for themselves. And so, uh, tell people where they can follow you on social medias and i will post a i will put this down in the description below as well so absolutely so i'm at uh, sean underscore o'connell um and the book has a um its own twitter account called uh w great power book uh at, at w great power book they both uh, we both have uh, instagram accounts as well too but i mostly use twitter uh, and, and honestly, you can, you can, what I just want people to know is that they can pre-order the book right now if they want to, so that they get it on November 1st and, um, you can go to Amazon, you can go to uh, Barnes and Noble, like we mentioned earlier, uh, any place where you find books, uh, it will ship internationally. If anybody's listening to this, uh, from around the world, uh, it's, we do. it's global distribution. So, um, I, I, I think it's going to hit more foreign territories in 2023. And it's really okay. just, you know, COVID is still messed up. So with, with distribution chains and, and everything's kind of slowing down. So if you're an international market and you're looking forward to it, I just ask that you be a little bit patient. Uh, we're working as hard as we can to get it out to you, but um, it's coming at the end of this year. And man, I just, I just wish it would get here. You know, I'm so excited for people to read it because I can tell you writing the Snyder cut book, I had no idea what I was doing. Right. And I know, I know that now um, because I, I, I saw this book come together and I, I realized it's just, it's, I, I'm so much more proud of it. I think it's so much better. I think there's got a lot of great stories in it. And if you're a Spider-Man fan at all, I think you're going to find some stuff to like out of it. Yeah. I, I was talking with the John Mark Pimenteas, uh, and, you know, he thought we were talking about his early stuff on uh, Marvel team up and, you know, he looks at it fondly, but he's like, it took me a little while to figure out what I was doing, and I, but maybe the Snyder the Snyder book was kind of that that with that for you, you know. So I, I'm really looking forward to reading uh, this book, and and like I say, uh, it's available for pre order now. Get it, get your copy, reserve it, and uh, we'll definitely have the links uh, down in the description. We'll have it, and if you're the uh, an audio listener, you'll you'll have it uh, also in the episode notes uh, for our audio listeners. So with that, we will um, wrap the episode up as, of course, you can follow us on our social medias at Spidey Radio on Twitter, at Spidey Network on Facebook and Instagram, uh, YouTube.com slash Spidey Radio Network. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. Let us let everybody know that uh, you watch this episode and, and we really appreciate it. Uh, voicemail line is 818-925-6631. That's where you can get your voice heard on the show. And uh, tomorrow night, we will be live here on YouTube as of this recording uh, for Make Mine Mayday. We're going to be covering the first few issues of Amazing Spider-Girl. So it is our season three premiere. So check that out. Uh, be 
8.30 Eastern Standard Time. So with that, we will begin to wrap this episode up. Thanks, guys, everybody, for listening once again to our patrons, patreon.com slash Spidey Network, Vinkman, Scott, Greg, Jurgen, Phoenician, Georgia, and Kale. Thank you guys once again for your contributions to this episode. Uh, Patreon, check out whatever, uh, check it out at patreon.com slash Spidey Network. Thanks again for watching. Thanks again for listening. And we will see you next time here on the Spider Dude Experience, where we'll be covering the second issue of Zeb Wells' run and more.